Hello and welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development's weekly podcast. Practitioners face many challenges when diagnosing growth constraints and setting a country on a path to greater prosperity, including navigating the political context and getting good policy ideas implemented. Miguel Angel Santos, Douglas Barrios, and Tim O'Brien are seasoned researchers at the Center for International Development's Growth Lab that have worked in Jordan, Sri Lanka, Mexico, and other countries, developing growth strategies on both national and subnational level. Today on CID's Research Spotlight podcast, Frederica Strub, Master's in Public Policy student at the Harvard Kennedy School, interviews Miguel, Douglas, and Tim, who share their experiences with growth diagnostics in the broader context of the global sustainable development agenda, exploring how they take into account inequality and social inclusion, as well as environmental sustainability when designing macroeconomic policy solutions. Thank you, everyone, for being here. I'm really excited for our interview. I'd like to start off our discussion with the methodology of growth diagnostics that was uh, first incepted 13 years ago and that you've been using throughout many of the projects that you've done in CID. I'm wondering, with all the wealth of experience that you have, is there an overarching trend in what are the most common growth constraints? Is every country really different or are there perhaps global commonalities in what restricts growth most often? And lastly, I'd like to know whether with this wealth of experience did you have to adjust the framework over time? Well, thanks. So, regards to first, what is a growth diagnostic? So, to try to sum it up in just a few sentences, a growth diagnostic is a methodology that tries to identify, out of all the things that have an opportunity to improve in a development context, what are the most relevant symptoms that appear to be constraining economic activity in a place. And once you have identified what are the most prevalent symptoms, try to identify what is the underlying cause that makes those symptoms prevalent in the existing context no? and how do they operate. You might use this for metaphors, but one that's helpful to explain is that if you are, for instance, piloting a plane and the plane is stalling and you have alarms going off all over the place, obviously each of them requires attention, but at this moment you might require one of them specifically required or is informing you what you should do in order to straighten out the airplane. So that's what the growth diagnostics tries to do. So in this 13 years since we've been applying one way or another uh, the growth diagnostic methodology, I think that something that has come up is first that every place is different. Even places that show the same symptoms might have a, a different underlying cause behind that symptom. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that the growth diagnostic per se it's a sort of a living methodology. And when we say that is that even though originally when it was proposed in its foundational paper, it had a very strict structure on the types of tests that you should do and in the types of data that you should consider, every time we have worked in a different place, different things have come up to include in the analysis, whether it is because new data has become available and other data is not available, or because once we have engaged with local policy stakeholders, they have suggested other areas for us to consider that perhaps in our broader theory of change we had not considered. And lastly, once we have done projects at different level of government, originally a lot of the implementation of growth diagnostics was at a national level. In the past few years, we've begun doing analysis at a subnational level for states and cities. We have realized that things that are relevant at our country level might not be pertinent at a subnational level, for instance, like macro stability and vice versa. Things like transportation which might not be relevant at a national level, public transportation, are super relevant at a city level. So I think it's something that more of an evolving 
methodology. Great, thank you. So finding the binding constraints and designing policies that can spur growth is a difficult task in itself. You've described a little bit the learning process that you have to go through, but then at the end of the day you would also like to see them implemented, of course. So all three of you have worked in countries with difficult political situations. How do you handle aversion and resistance to change? I guess we all had different experiences because we have worked in different places. But I think the most important thing is to have an ally and the government of the city or the state of the country you are working in, that you can be fully transparent with him on what do you think or what the analysis we do is saying are the key issues and that can sit with you and think through the political implications of policies aimed at resolving those issues and how to go about them and can also go honestly through, do we have the capacity to fix the problem or to implement the policy that you've come up with to solve this constraint? And I think that it's a key element. Some of our projects are weird in that sense because they are sponsored by multilateral institutions. So the local government, being local like the Panama government or the Chiapas project, which was hired by the Minister of Finance, not necessarily by the governor of Chiapas, makes this uh, sort of evident recommendation not so evident in practice. So in some contexts, we came to work invited by people that were not the direct stakeholders of the policy or the ones that will be in charge of implementing things. And in those cases, it's really important that we position ourselves within the place as someone that is coming to help think through the problems and work together with the domestic government, be it a mayor or a governor or a president, to think through the possible solutions to the issues that the analysis is uncovering. And I think that's a key element because we are not always aware of all the political implications of the policies, implementation of policies we come up with. So it's key to have these local partners that help you in considering all the parties affected and coming up with a policy design that actually manages to improve the problem to some extent that, in our experience, is far from ideal. But as long as it's somewhere between the current status quo and the ideal solution, it's worth implementing. Yeah, I'll just add from my experience of doing growth diagnostics in several countries with CID that it's great if at the end you come up with solutions to the problems that you've diagnosed, but it's often not really possible. So sometimes you diagnose a problem with macroeconomic policy. Uh, then you might be able to design a solution fairly simply. But most times you come up with problems that are much more complex, and the reasons underlying them are very complex, and they have to do with weaknesses in, in state capability, and they have to do with political dynamics. So in my experience, a growth diagnostic works really well as a process for prioritizing key problems. And then once you have those problems prioritized, your next step is to figure out who's responsible for solving those problems. And maybe there isn't somebody responsible for solving those problems, and you have to build it. Uh, we typically work with governments, so finding a ministry that is responsible for that problem, but also that you can communicate with and understands that problem, and it becomes a shared problem. Then you can start to do really interesting work at designing solutions Sometimes the problems we were talking about in the discussion earlier are a problem like corruption. Sometimes you have to build a different constituency 
that understands and prioritizes that problem to work with. Uh, sometimes you can't work with a direct government counterpart. And also in all the places that I've worked, the government is not one uniform thing. There's often different people with different priorities. So I, I find the really interesting thing with growth diagnostics is once you've done analytical work to prioritize a complex problem, then taking the next steps of how you work together with teams within the government or outside the government to kind of infiltrate that problem, understand it at a deeper level, and, and try to build solutions from there. Great. So I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into some of the key challenges that you likely have faced in your work. First of them being immigration. So one of the key aspects of growth diagnostics is economic complexity, and that economic complexity is rooted in know-how and in, in complexity of knowledge. So in a lot of places, immigration and skilled immigration is actually an important factor to spur growth. But on the other hand, anti-immigration sentiment is also very strong in a lot of countries. For example, it was in Panama, where some of you worked, or for example, right now you're working in Jordan, where refugees are, are coming to the country in the millions and it creates political tension. So I'm wondering, how do you approach this issue? How do you navigate in a political space that is so heated and make your recommendations? Well, we always tend to talk about immigration just because when we are called to places, most of the time these places, they already know how to do certain things and manufacture certain products or services, and they want to learn to do new things. They want to diversify the revenue streams and their sources of exports. But a way to accelerate that is through foreign direct investment, like having a company come in to share the knowledge they have with locals and then having knowledge being diffused and transferred. And another one, it's having people migrating into the country with a certain knowledge that did not exist before. And thanks to that, some activities that hadn't been possible up to then become feasible and then knowledge begin and it's transferred to locals and that's how countries evolve. So immigration, it's very important. Now, it's interesting that I've worked in many Latin American projects In many countries in Latin America, immigration is perceived as an issue, but when you calculate the share of immigrants in the population, it's extremely low. For instance, Colombia, it's a country that, let's not consider the recent wave of Venezuelan refugees, but a few years ago, they were already complaining. They had too many foreigners. They have one foreigner every 400 Colombians. In Panama, for instance, where people complain they have been like flown with foreigners from Colombia and Venezuela, When we worked there in 2015, according to the census, 4% of the population were foreigners. Now you talk about Jordan. Jordan has nowadays 10 million. Three and a half of those 10 millions are refugees, and probably out of the remaining six, three are of Palestinian descent. The Latin American countries uh, seem to have like a lower threshold to foreigners than other places, and I think that's, that's interesting. Panama, when you go to work in a place, you have to be aware of what is the particular bottom of that place. So Panama, it's a country that was created and was tutored in a way by the United States up until very recently, uh, 20 years ago, when the sovereignty of the canal was returned. So obviously telling Panamanians that you need more foreigners, it's already a challenge. All the studies that we did in Panama, like we got the econometrics right in the sense that foreigners create jobs for Panamanians that weren't otherwise possible. And having more foreigners in your industry and district is associated with higher salaries for Panamanians. So the numbers were right in that sense 
But translating that and telling that to people was extremely tough. So the way we went about it is we designed a number of recommendations aimed at increasing the amount of foreign labor into Panama, a high skill. And then we went through the process of how would it take to implement those recommendations. And some recommendations that demanded either changes in laws or in the constitutions we have to drop them, or they were just too tough for a government entering its last year tenure, and some other recommendations that were mostly related to presidential decrees, allowing dependents to work, taking countries out of what they call extraordinary visa request countries, which were 50 countries. Those were presidential decrees and were measures and policies that were easier to take. And so we learned that when you recommend something and you want to get to an ideal, in terms of policy, that sometimes is really ambitious. So as long as you throw the ball somewhere in between where you are right now and the ideal place where you want to be, that's already enough. So we did end up having uh, an influence in policies to increase migration in Panama. Not all the directives we wanted to have implemented were implemented because, well, Panama is a country that is very sensitive to foreigners and immigration and you can only do what you can do. Any good reform is a reform that you can implement without threatening your staying power, that you have the capacity to implement, and that hit the constraints preventing the economy from growing faster in the right direction. So in that sense, the space of solutions is much more limited than the technical analysis implied. It's immigration in the context of Jordan, it's an incredible thing to observe in, in Jordan, how complex the labor market is as a result of immigration. And you don't need to inform policymakers of the situation with refugees and the pressures that refugees are putting on public services. But in that context, certain things get missed. So in Jordan, there's so much attention now about how do we integrate refugees into the labor force? How do we serve them well? To the extent that people tend to miss what's happening at the higher skill end of immigration. And we performed a lot of econometric analysis in Jordan and found some conclusions that foreigners, especially from outside the Arab world, are delivering critical skills for the Jordanian economy to grow. But communicating those is very difficult. But what we actually then did was go out and talk to companies and get examples, which then make it really easy for policymakers to understand what's happening. So, for example, we found one company in Jordan that's new. They do software engineering. They hire 100 high-skilled Jordanians, mainly software engineers, 50% women, which is amazing because Jordan has one of the lowest female labor force participation rates in the world. But in order for this company to make the investment, they needed to bring in two foreigners. So this is a ratio of 50 Jordanian jobs to one foreign job. And we met that company and we thought, well, maybe this is an exception. We can't go around with this ratio 50 to 1. So then we traveled outside the capital, visited another company. In this case, they hired 950 college-educated Jordanians, but they needed three Indian workers. It was a call center. So that's an even higher ratio. And then when you explain this to policymakers, they get it. And they realize that this was a hole in their thinking, a problem that they didn't understand existed, but now they understand it existed. And then it was very interesting to begin to learn it's not entirely clear at the beginning who even has responsibility for solving that problem. Is it a Ministry of Labor? Is it a Ministry of Interior? What are the tools to solve it? So that's an immigration story that's unique to Jordan, but 
immigration is a topic that tends to come up a lot and be misunderstood. I think Jordan is just one interesting example. Great, thank you. Another challenge that a lot of developing countries face is that they are in conflict or have experienced conflict. Tim, you've worked in Sri Lanka, which underwent many years of civil war and ethnic unrest until fairly recently. And I'm wondering how does the heritage of this conflict impact Sri Lanka's prospects for prosperity nowadays, and how did it influence the political environment in which you worked? I think that the conflict in Sri Lanka affected every political structure, the economic structure, the physical structure of infrastructure, so that when you enter a country like we did in 2016, we're seeing an economy that totally evolved within the constraints of a 30-year conflict, which meant that economic activity was super focused around the capital city, which was an interesting thing for us to experience because then when we did a growth diagnostic on the national economy, we also focused our attention on the capital city because that's the place where there's the most industries, where there's the most know-how, where there are these agglomerations. And it was only later when we started doing regional growth diagnostics outside the capital that we started to see the country from a new perspective. After some work, we could see that the constraints to growth in the middle of the island are much different than in the capital city. So it was a lesson to us that we should always look from multiple different angles, and sometimes they intersect. So what we found, in short, is that the economy overall is constrained by a few different things, but one of the main things is it's very difficult to get new industrial land in the most productive parts of Sri Lanka. But it's very easy to get industrial land further away from Colombo. But the areas further away from Colombo aren't well connected to the industrial ecosystems in Colombo. So you have these dual constraints where it's land around Colombo, but it's transportation infrastructure further from Colombo, which leads to a kind of nice virtuous cycle that you can hope for, which is if you simultaneously develop infrastructure leading out of Colombo and install new industrial zones pushing further and further out from Colombo, you can imagine a lot of the existing companies expanding into the newer industrial land while the more dynamic, newer foreign investments take up that prime space in Colombo. All that grows out of the nature of the conflict. Thanks. So lastly, I'd like to talk about impact. Douglas has done a lot of work on Venezuela where the current political situation makes the implementation of your ideas pretty much impossible. And you've also worked a lot on Mexico where now a new government has swept in and this might also make the outcome of your projects there uncertain. So I'm wondering, could you give us an idea of what you define as a successful, impactful project? Or are there other ways of measuring success? Yeah, sure. I think that we will all like the standard definition of, of impact being that you get good data set, you're able to do correct analysis, you have a counterpart that understands the analysis, provides feedback, strengthening it, you come up with a better proposal, you agree on it, it gets political sustainability, it's approved into a law, you put in a plan, implementation plan to do it, put it on the ground, it is successfully implemented and it has the expected results. Uh, but in reality, that's that's far from it. In reality, there are a lot of pitfalls along the way. Either you have to do an imperfect analysis, either not everybody is on board and you have to sacrifice part of the solution. Sometimes implementation cannot be done or it's done in a different way in which it was originally intended. And sometimes things have unexpected outcomes or implementation is affected by something 
completely outside the scope of what we wanted to do. So sometimes you have to measure impact a, a little bit differently in order to, to live with the choices you've made or the suggestions <laughs> that, that you put forward. So in that regard, some of these projects might not have that ideal definition of impact, but have impact in many other ways. So other ways in which we consider impact is the way it shapes our thinking, not only in CID, but in the broader development community, if it, it changes the way we want to approach issues, if it changes the way in which we think about certain constraints, if it changes the way in which we pursue certain analysis, that's impact. Impact is also the way in which it shapes learning here at the Kennedy School. If it varies and we move away from thinking of growth just from a macroeconomic model and think of it uh, as solving place-specific constraints, that is impact, or if it generates some sort of interest within our students to pursue these types of analysis once they go back. And also impact sometimes is additional requests. We were discussing this earlier that some of our projects, particularly one of our projects in Mexico, in Chiapas, given the structure of it, it was a bit it was difficult for that project to turn into impact on the ground because it was financed by a multilateral organization that not necessarily was funded, sorry, that not necessarily was linked with the government. But that created some sort of a ripple within the development community that then they invited us to work on another city in the northern part of Mexico, in Mosillo, in the state of Sonora, which created its own ripple that led us to work in three other states in Mexico, now in Argentina and a number of subnational places all around Latin America. So hopefully one of those turns into policy impact. But in the meantime, I think we have been growing into developing a methodology that is no longer our own that has permeated somehow within the governments of the places that we have been and within the multilateral organizations and NGOs that we have cooperated with. So, so that's impact as well. And I think that's helpful to, as Miguel was saying earlier, keep the ball moving in the appropriate direction at least. Yeah, I think it's also people have to remember we are not the public sector department of a consulting firm. Mm-hmm. And that means that we are here to learn, as we said at the beginning, We are trying to increase our knowledge of the development process and then sharing that knowledge with the developing community, but first and foremost with our students. So in that sense, we also take pride when we do a project that changes the way in which the developing community sees not only a topic but a place. And I think our work in Chiapas, which was not implemented by the reasons Douglas mentioned already, had a lot of impact because we basically told the government that you set out to improve education, and you did. You set out to improve the quality and coverage, and you did. You set out to improve infrastructure, and you have three airports, and you have great roads, and you have a port, and yet the gap of income between Chiapas and the rest continues growing. So this makes clear these issues that are all important were not the key issue, and we raised a puzzle that had some ripples and have caused the people within Mexico and looking at Mexico from the outside are thinking through the development process. In other times, we have impacts, but not at the moment. Like when we go to a place, we do research, we learn, and then we write about what we learned. And we make that available to the public, which is a key precondition to work with CID, is that you have to be willing to let us write whatever we want to write on the place and whatever we want to share about the learning process we had in that place. And that, in turn, might have impact on the place later on in time. So we have been approached by many candidates or potential governor candidates in Chiapas that saw the plan 
plan wasn't implemented by the current governor for X or Y reasons, whereas people looking into that, and so has happened in other places like Panama. So it's uh, shaping the way in which people think about a place, and sometimes impact is not immediate right away, but it comes in time. Thank you all very much for your comments and insights. If you want to learn more about CID's research and events, please visit cid.harvard.edu. See you next week.